All right, let's pray, shall we? Gracious God, thank you for another opportunity to uh, word and to understand you more, Father, why you've done what you've done, why you've planned the things you've planned, Father. Pray that uh, you would crystallize our thinking on the doctrine of hell more this morning, uh, not so that... Uh, Lord, Lord, not so that we can just keep it to ourselves. Rather, Lord God, so that we can use it in our meditation to increase our worship and to lead us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ more frequently and passionately, God, because you're telling people that they need to escape, to escape sin. They need to escape the only way that that is possible is Christ and trust in the Pray that you would help us to remember these things. And Lord, uh, may we worship you with heart and mind now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Good. We don't have, again, I apologize, no PowerPoint. But uh, who has uh, notes? Does everyone have notes? They are, do we get notes passed out? Should be back there. Uh, yeah, um, can you grab those, yeah, Jim, on the top next to the prayer hands? Sorry. Let's pass those out so everybody can have their notes. All right. I want you guys. I don't want any excuse. You should remember these things. Good deal. Okay, so um, last week we talked about the eternality of hell and um, the objection that some people were saying, or pe- some people continue to say, that it's not just for God to send people to hell based on 70 or 80 years of sin. Because hell is eternal. So how can someone be punished eternally for 70 or 80 years of sin in this life? And we looked at how um, that belief that hell isn't eternal or that um, hell isn't real, it, it diminishes sin. It diminishes the doctrine of sin. And as a result, diminishes the holiness of God. The more and more I, I study uh, hell and the more and more we're looking into this, we see that there's a domino effect. If we diminish the doctrine of hell, if we are um, people who are embarrassed of it, we don't talk about it, we don't like it, we consider it to be the black sheep of the the Christian doctrine, then it affects other doctrines. When it affects other doctrines, then it affects the way we live. It affects our worship. It affects uh, whether or not we serve and to what degree we serve. Right? So there's a domino effect. We diminish hell, then other doctrines are affected. Therefore, our lives are affected. Okay, so that's, that's why it's so important for us to not only believe this, but to believe it unashamedly, right? To um, praise God for it and to see his goodness and his rightness and his beauty in it. And so that's what we're doing here more and more. Um, I, I, I call this a, an unashamed defense of hell because we should be defending the doctrine of hell to other people who don't believe in it, but we should also be defending our own hearts, Right? Because in our own hearts, we're tempted uh, to be embarrassed of it or ashamed of it. And so we've got to defend that tendency in our own hearts. So use these things as you doubt as well. Okay, so today we're going to uh, go back to the objection that we were looking at the first two weeks. And, because really, this is the, the main objection, I think, when it comes to hell. And so we're going to answer this again. And that is, uh, God cannot be a loving God and send people to an eternity of torment and agony. Okay, so let's answer that this morning with um, a few lines of reasoning and especially scripture. Okay, number one, have your Bibles ready because I'm asking you guys to look up uh, a lot of verses this morning. 
The love of God is distorted if we redefine hell, right? They're saying God can't be loving if he does send people to hell. And uh, the claim that we're making this morning is actually God's love is distorted if we diminish hell or we uh, abandon the doctrine of hell, okay? So we're, we're arguing the contrary. Okay, so it's distorted if we redefine hell. All right, so let's build this up, okay? That's the statement that uh, I want to move toward, but how are we going to support that? Look at A here. Sin provokes the wrath of God. Sin provokes the wrath of God, okay? So um, let's look at a scripture here that's going to help us out. Romans 1.18, let's turn there. And then we'll look at another text that's in chapter 2. Romans 1.18. Someone uh, read that for us, please. Okay. So, uh, and we could go on and read the rest of, let's see, verses 18 through 27, I believe, and see uh, all of the different... Uh, descriptions of the ungodliness that the people are committing, right? But he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against these, these people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that was us before we came to Christ, by the way. And uh, so look here with me, and you see, he, uh, he says, again in verse 20, See, I'm sorry, I have my other Bible with me. I had everything highlighted, but I took my other Bible with me. Um, they did not give thanks to him, verse 21. They didn't honor him as God. Uh, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God for, for the image of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals, right? And uh, they dishonored their bodies. Verse 24, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it goes on and on and on. God's wrath is revealed against that kind of behavior. Now, someone uh, look over at chapter 2, verse 5. Read that one, please. Go ahead, Alex. Yes. Storing up wrath. For yourselves for the day of judgment because of your stubborn and unrepentant hearts. So sin provokes the wrath of God. I'm going somewhere with this. I want you to, just to, to build with me here. So B then is because of who God is and what he has done, it's right for God to be angry over sin, over our sin. Okay, so that's the question we have to ask, right? If we say that uh, sin provokes the anger of God, we have to ask, okay, is it right for God to be angry at sin? I mean, is sin really that bad? And last week, what did we discover? Is sin really that bad? Why? Why is sin that bad? For, for, for God to become angry at it. That's right. When he said it's, it's an offense to his holiness and his moral perfection. It's, it, sin is so bad because God is so great. Sin is so bad because God is so holy and God is so great. And uh, therefore, um, it, once we rebel against him, because that's really what sin is, right? 
He said, do this, live this way, and this is the best way for you to live, to experience the most joy. Live this way, and you will give glory to me. And we've said, no, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live for myself. And so, uh, because of who God is, that's not just a, a little slap on the hand. It d- deserves hell because God is infinite in his holiness. Far beyond our understanding, our capacity to even understand his greatness, his holiness, his righteousness. Therefore, it is right for him to be angry because he is so good and so holy and so perfect and so loving. Let's look at a few of these here just that describe his, um, I think, his his right to be angry over sin. Uh, What does Genesis 1, 26 and 27 say? Anybody off the top of your head have an idea what that might say? Genesis 1, 26 and 27? A creation account, right? So, uh, yes, Alex. That's right. God created man in his own image. So, how would that then give him the right to be angry over sin? Let's, let's, let's think here together. How would the fact that he created us and he created us in his own image uh, give him the right to be angry over sin? What do you think? We are, yeah, we are to, to bear forth his image. We are to show uh, each other what the world, uh, show the world what he is like, right? When God, um, sorry, um, Dan went through that sermon series, I guess it was last year when he was talking about what it means to bear the image of God. We are to show forth his attributes and show the world what he's like. But um, when we rebel against his will and we rebel against his law, then we reject the whole purpose for our existence, Okay, so uh, what about the fact that he has created us, not just in his image, and we're failing to do what we were designed to do, which is show the world what he is like, but the fact that he created us, does that, does that give him any right? Does it? What right does that give God? Right. Exactly. It gives him the right to do as he pleases, um, we want to reverse the roles. We want to tell God what he should do, right? We want to put God on trial for these things. We want to put God on trial for hell and some of these other things that we read in the scriptures. But if he is creator, then he gets to say how this world should run. He gets to say what the punishment is when it doesn't run the way it should run. And we don't do what we should do. So the mere fact that he, he is creator I mean, gives him the right to uh, tell us, you live this way, and if you don't live this way, this is what happens. And then on top of that, we're creating his image, and we're failing to fulfill the purpose that we are created for in showing the world what he is like. Okay? So the, mere, the, the fact that he is creator gives him the right uh, to be angry over sin whenever we rebel against his will. Now, um, also, look at this. Uh, let, let's turn to Psalm 145, if you will. Who would like to read Psalm 145, verse 9? Wow, that's, that is a wonderful statement. He, he, is, he is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And, and then we turn to Matthew 5, 44 and 45, and it says that... Um, God uh, gives us common grace, right? He, he lets the uh, sun shine 
on the evil and the unrighteous, right? He gives the rain to the unrighteous and the wicked in this world, right? So there's common graces that God gives because he does, there is a sense in which he loves the world and he loves everyone. There is a sense in which he loves everyone. He gives common graces like rain and sun, uh, families and, uh, and jobs and, and comforts in this life. And so on top of that, not only did he create, okay? Let, stick with me here. He created us and he created us in his image, Okay? That gives him a right over us as creator. But then he was good. It, it continues to be good to, to everybody as they are here in this life, living out lives uh, where, th- where they're not in hell right now. Right? Anybody who's not in hell right now is receiving God's mercy. Right? Because they've already sinned. God's being patient with them. He's being merciful. And so he's uh, being good to them. He is, he is being merciful to them. He is giving them things that are, um, that are of comfort and peace in this life. And so when they continue to rebel, or you, know, you think of us before Christ, continue to rebel against him, I mean, that gives him right to be angry. Not only did he create, but he's being good to us, and we're continuing to say, no, I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to take what you, uh, what I've given to you, or you've given to me, sorry. I'm going to take what you've given to me, God, and I'm going to use it for my own purposes. I'm going to use it for what I desire in this life. I'm going to uh, support my own will, follow my own will, not yours. I'm going to take advantage of all of your mercy and all of your grace. You've created me, and you're good to me, and I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. So does God have a right to be angry? He does. Now, look underneath B here with me. <laughs> Little I. What would it say about God for him to be angry at sin, but not willing to punish it? Does it make sense? I, I, uh, I forgot who, uh, I was doing some studying this week, and somebody brought that point up I was reading. What kind of inconsistency is that? For God to say, yes, I, I'm angry at your sin. It, it is, uh, you've provoked my anger with your rebellion against my will. But then God not being willing to punish it, and then punish it accordingly and appropriately? Well, what would that say about who God is? There would be an inconsistency in his character, right? There would be a break in who he is. I mean, he's, he's infinite and perfect in all that he is. But if he was angered by sin and not willing to punish it, then that would be... That would make him imperfect, really. Look with me at Romans 3, 23 through 26. Should be a through sign, not a colon. Sorry about that. Romans 3, 23 through 26. We're starting to see now, with this verse especially, this text, how not believing in hell or diminishing hell affects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, somebody read that paragraph. I forget who it was. Um, maybe it was Martin Luther. I can't remember. Somebody said that this is the uh, most important paragraph in the Bible. That was their, their opinion. Someone read that, please. 23 through 26. Go ahead, Chris. Loudly.
Good. Thanks, Chris. So, why did Christ then, um, why did Christ die according to this text of Scripture? We've all sinned, absolutely. And Christ died in the uh, first century, right? I mean, the world had existed for thousands of years before that. People had been sinning. People had been sinning with, uh, you know, their, their every choice, uh, their every um, heartbeat, so to speak, when they weren't obeying or, or uh, living for the glory of God. And so Christ came to die. What was God doing all along, before then? Before then, as people were sinning, uh, what was God doing? He was, was he punishing their sins accordingly, the way that they deserved those sins to be punished? What was he doing? According to this text, he was passing over them. How could he do that, Luke? How could he pass over those sins that were committed in the Old Testament? He He had mercy. How could he have mercy? Well, those, those were meant to point forward to the once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus, but those uh, were, were not, never meant to forgive sins. If, let's put it this way. If Jesus never died, those would have been no good whatsoever. If Jesus never would have died, those sacrifices would have meant a thing. Okay? So he was being merciful. He was being patient, passing over those sins that were committed in the Old Testament, okay, before Christ comes on the scene. Um, so... He had to then make a sacrifice. Somebody had to pay for those sins. They weren't paying for those sins. Someone had to pay for those sins. Okay, when Moses, in his sin, who paid for those sins? He didn't pay for those sins. Okay, what about David's sins? David didn't pay for those sins like he should have paid for those sins. Someone had to pay. And so that's why Jesus came to live and die and rise again. So he could pay for the sins that God passed over. Because God had passed over them, what if he never punished those sins? What would that say about God? What if, he never, what if no one ever got punished, no one ever took the penalty for those sins that were committed in the past? What, what then could we say about God? He's unjust. Absolutely. He would be unjust because he just let sin slide. He's holy He's righteous, he's good, and he just said, you know, I'm, I'll let that slide. That's all right. Yeah, go on with your merry way. But all along in his plan, he knew Christ is coming. I can, I can be merciful. I can be patient because Christ is coming, and he is going to bear the wrath for the sins of many. Okay, so um, let's go back to the text here in Romans chapter 3, verse, verses 23 through 26. 25 here, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's Jesus. Propitiation is what? There you go. Christ's sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. Very good. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. He had to uphold his righteousness. And that's the answer to the blank here that you've got. He had to uphold his righteousness. Uh, If God was angry at sin but unwilling to punish it, then there would be an inconsistency and therefore a failure on God's part to uphold his righteousness. He had to show himself just. If he was going to be merciful and pass over those sins, then he also had to show himself just or else we would say God is imperfect. God is unjust. And if God is unjust and imperfect, then he's no longer God. 
and no longer worthy of our glory, uh, the glory we give and the worship we give. Yes, Alex. We do. That's right. Yeah, we're stamped with that. We have the understanding. We want justice. We talked about this last week, right? We want to see the Hitlers and the Stalins in, in hell forever. We want to see the Bin Ladens in hell forever. We want that kind of justice, but we don't want it for, you know, for us. We don't want it for the, the everyday average Joe who just kind of keeps his nose clean on the outside, even though he's evil on the inside, what the word says. So you're absolutely right. Uh, we have an idea of justice, and uh, we, we want God to be just. We, you know, a lot of us uh, suppress that truth in unrighteousness, of course, but we, we know what justice is. We, we at least have an idea of that, and so we want that. And God would be unjust if he didn't punish sin accordingly. That inconsistency would be a willing, uh, it would be a failure on God's part to uphold his righteousness. But he did punish. He, he, he either punishes us in hell, or he punished Jesus Christ on the cross. Those are the only two options. The scriptures only give those two options. Either uh, we are punished forever in hell, or Jesus Christ is punished for us in our place. Okay, let's keep going here. <clears throat> little arrow thing. Yeah, I, sorry, I should have put something else. Uh, little arrow. If God did not uphold his righteousness, then essentially he would be communicating that we are more worthy than he is. You think that's true? Read that again. God did not uphold his righteousness, then essentially he would be communicating that we are more worthy than he is. You think that's true? Why? Why? If God did not punish sin, whether punishing Christ for sin or us for sin, that God would be communicating that we are more worthy than he is. Any ideas? Well, yes, yes. No, you're, you're, you're right. You're right about that. Really because, we, as we discovered last week, um, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Isaiah makes it clear that God created us for his own glory. That's the purpose why he, we exist. That's why he made us, for his own glory. Okay, and so oftentimes we, we turn things around so that we think God exists for us, ultimately, right? Do you ever functionally think that? It's that uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term used in like sermons or in literature. It's a uh, God just, he, he is, uh, he's basically my therapist. He exists for me and to, to give me good things and give me what I need to be there for me whenever I need him. And we, I know especially in the American culture, falls into that mentality that he is that, he exists for me. But no, we exist for him. And so if he did not uphold his righteousness, uh, uphold his justice, then uh, that would be saying, really, uh, all the good that I'm doing and passing over your sins, you're worth that. You're worth that. And he would be saying, I'm not worth, worthy of upholding my righteousness, but you're worth me passing over all these sins and not punishing you for them. But no, 
let's remember we exist for him. He doesn't exist for us, ultimately. Although him existing for himself means we get all the benefits of that. We get all the benefits of, of his love and goodness as those who have been adopted in to his through Christ. Does that make sense? Am I, am I, does that make sense, Matt? Does that make sense to you? Okay, good deal. All right. Let's keep going here then. And so, why do I say that? Let's just turn to Isaiah 48 real quick to show you what God says about himself. Who's in sword drills whenever you were a kid? You ever do sword drills? Yeah? I was bad at those. (laughs) I don't know if I have like chubby fingers or something. I don't know. Isaiah 48, 11. Someone read that. Hmm. That is so potent. Look at that. For my own sake, I will act. He's saying, that's why I'm here. That's why, that's why I exist. That's why I've created this world. I act for my own sake. How can my name be profaned in my glory? I will not give to another. He won't give his glory to us over himself. We exist for him. He's created this world. He's created us. Everything he does is for his own glory. So he's got to uphold his righteousness. So either we've got to go to hell or Jesus Christ has to be our sacrifice. Only two options. If God is going to uphold his righteousness and be worthy of worship and continue to be God. And so, if we look at Matthew 5.48, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, your heavenly Father is perfect. He is perfect. But, if God did not punish sin, then his justice would be imperfect, and consequently, he would cease to be God. Because God must be perfect. And there's there's not even an, an inkling of inconsistency or imperfection in who God is. He is perfect. Okay. C. If hell is eternal torment and agony, then what did Jesus receive on the cross? You ever think about that? If, as we talked about last week, the punishment fits the crime, sin is uh, rebellion against the holy God, so sin is that bad, and it, therefore it deserves an appropriate punishment, which is hell, and Jesus Christ actually took the punishment for those who would believe, then what did Jesus receive on the cross? If hell is eternal torment and agony, and that's what people get when they reject Jesus Christ and pay for their sins, then what did Jesus go through on the cross? I think, I think the reality of hell helps us understand Gethsemane. Let's, let's turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 37 through 42. The reality of hell helps us understand Gethsemane. Someone read that, uh, that paragraph, that text of Scripture for us, and let's follow along closely. Thanks, Matt.
Good. And you've got uh, other accounts of this um, where he is sweating drops of blood because of his agony over what he's going to do, the road that he is walking down. And um, I believe if it's, uh, it's not this account, but it may be the, the Luke account where it's three times, actually, three times that he goes back to the Lord and prays, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. And he says himself, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Why, why was he in such agony? Why was he in such agony? What is this cup that he's talking about? What is this cup he's asking to be removed? What is that cup all about? Any ideas? God's wrath. Yeah, absolutely. You can talk well. It's the cup of his wrath. We, we see um, that kind of imagery used again in Revelation when it talks about the wrath of God. And so... He, he, understand, he understands what's coming. It's not just the physical death, right? The physical death, yes, was awful, but it's the, the spiritual aspect of uh, him bearing the sins of the elect, um, of him being re- forsaken by his father, and all of those things. We, we, we can't even comprehend the spiritual agony that must have been like for um, God himself being innocent. He was, he was completely innocent. And, and the relationship we had with the Father, the, the fellowship was never broken, ever. And then all of a sudden it is. And, and uh, you know, we have enough sin. I mean, one sin is enough for me to go to hell for eternity. But we're talking about him paying for all of the sins of all of the elect. Okay, in my, in my life, how many sins are there? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sending you right now. I'm sure of it. Okay? And so, can you imagine him paying for all of that there? If hell says something about uh, how bad sin is, then hell helps us understand why Christ was sweating those drops of blood, why he was grieved to the point of death, why he had, was pleading with the Father like he was for the cup of wrath to be removed. It helps us understand. Uh, it helps us appreciate the cross more. But if we diminish hell, if we, we throw it, if we throw it away, or if we, uh, we think it's, it's unloving of God, then we don't get that kind of soul-piercing appreciation for what he did for me when I didn't deserve a bit of it, but rather deserved what he got. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, right now, they're receiving uh, the blessings of God, the common grace of God, right? But that will be taken away, and it will be the wrath of God instead. Okay, so the reality of hell helps us understand Gethsemane and therefore understand the cross better. Um, look at this. I, let's just think about this, you know, step by step here. With hell as the just punishment for sin, our need becomes more dire. Doesn't it? 
It's, it's not just sin we're escaping. We are escaping our sins. We are being freed from our sin, but we're also being freed from the punishment of sin, right? Not only the power of sin, but the punishment of sin. So it makes our need more dire, right? Our situation is more severe than we thought if hell is a reality, okay? So um, I look at Romans 2, 6 through 11. Flip over there with me. Look at this. Um, the judgment, so is it two, six, three, yeah. The judgment of God, that's the verse before, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So we have wrath, tribulation, distress for those who rebel against the will of God and pursue selfish ambition. Okay, But if hell is not in the equation, if God's wrath isn't manifested in the form of hell, then it's not that big, it's not, it's a big deal, but it's not that big a deal. Okay, well, yeah, I, I sinned. But even for annihilationism, what's that? What's annihilationism? What's that belief? That hell is us just ceasing to exist, right? And there have been some evangelicals that have, have uh, promoted that belief that it's just, hell is just you cease to exist. You don't get, you don't get to go to heaven, basically, but you just cease to exist. Well, even that... I think it distorts the gospel. It distorts, uh, we we don't see our need as that dire. Therefore, we don't appreciate God's grace as much and the cross, what what he went through, the agony. What about Christ's sacrifice when we consider hell as the just punishment for sin? Christ's sacrifice becomes more glorious and more heroic. It actually becomes a rescue, doesn't it? it? It is a rescue mission. He came down to rescue us from the power and the penalty of sin. So his sacrifice is worthy of our adoration, worthy of our praise and glory. So much more if hell is there in the equation. Look at this. Uh, Romans 5, flip over a couple pages. I'm going to read uh, Romans 5, 9, and 10, please. Good. So we were his enemies, and we are saved from the wrath of God. And we just talked about how the cup that Jesus prayed to be removed was the cup of God's wrath. And so if we see Jesus approaching the cross in that kind of agony, all of a sudden what he did becomes more glorious because that's the kind of wrath that we were saved from through his blood and his sacrifice. So, again, hell helps us. Um, it creates a, a realization that our need is more dire. Christ's sacrifice becomes more glorious, more heroic. God's grace becomes richer. God's grace becomes richer. What does Romans 6.23 say? 
What is it? Romans 6.23. Well, who is it? There we go. Very good. Very good. So, the penalty, or the, the, the wages of sin is death. What you earn with your rebellion is death, spiritual death, in hell. But God's grace, the gift of his grace, is salvation through Christ. And so, you see a lot of this in the New Testament. If you start opening up your eyes, you see the contrast. Here's what you get if you live a life of sin and you reject God's grace through Christ. Here's what you get if you accept Christ, if you receive him, if you, if you uh, submit to his authority, believe and trust in him. This is what you get. So you see that kind of contrast in the New Testament all the time. Here's the wrath you get, but here's the eternal life and all the blessings you get. And here's the, the grace of God you get if you believe. So God's grace becomes richer with hell being the, uh, the alternative. Okay, number four here. The blessings of salvation sweeter. So not just God's grace becoming richer, but the, the blessings, that w- what we get with his grace becomes that much sweeter. Turn, uh, turn to me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. Who would read that, please? First Thess, 5, 9, and 10. Go ahead, Damon. Okay. There you go. That's right. So he just got, uh, he just got through talking about the day of the Lord, when, the, when Christ will return. It says, uh, we haven't been destined for wrath. Praise the Lord. If we're in Christ, we haven't been destined for wrath, right? But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the benefit of that, according to Paul? We'll live with him. We'll, we'll live with him. Whether, whether we, we die now in this life or whether Christ returns, we will live with him. I, I mean... And then he says in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another just as you are doing. Okay? The, those words are encouraging. Why are they encouraging? Because we get to be with our maker and our savior forever. And we're, we don't get his wrath, but we get his grace. One more thing I want to show you in terms of the blessings of salvation and how they become sweeter. Uh, look at Hebrews 10, 26 through 36. Again, this compare and contrast. Here's what you don't get if you're in Christ. Here's what you um, do get if you're in Christ. I just want to highlight a few points here real quick for you. Look with me in Hebrews 10, 26, 36. Um, let's see. For if it, we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then he goes on to talk about, but remember the former days, and he gets into that, but he says, verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Those things, the lasting reward, the inheritance, those things that come along with faith in Christ as compared to the uh, expectation of terrifying judgment. Blessings of salvation become sweeter. So basically what all this is saying is that the reality of hell increases joy in worship. The reality of hell increases joy in worship for the believer. Okay? Um, one more text I want you to turn to because we've got about five more minutes. And that is Romans 9, 19 through 23. So I'm going to read that text for us and we'll talk about it for a moment. Jimmy, go ahead. Uh, it's uh, Romans 9, 19 through 23. Yeah. Now, it's one of those texts of Scripture that kind of makes you a little uncomfortable when you read it, right? But it's true. And uh, what we see here is that God is the one who is creator. Therefore, the thing that, that is created can't look to the creator and say, why have you made me this way? So God is supreme. He, he gets to call the shots. He gets to say, this is the world I've created. Here's how I want it to run. Here's what happens if you don't do things my way. He gets to call the shots. Okay, and we can't say to him, why have you made me this way? Because we are the created thing. We are not the creator. We don't have that right. But he, what he says here in verse 20, sorry, 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying, what if these people that are unrighteous and wicked, what if those, those people are storing up wrath, and I am showing you my power and demonstrating my wrath upon them so that you will see the riches of my mercy more clearly. So you will see me and worship me more for who I am. So as, as people in Christ, we should look at hell and we should say, I don't get that. I, I, don't, I don't receive that. Not, I, don't, I don't get that. No, I, I don't receive that. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to experience that. I, I get to experience this pure, concentrated mercy and grace through Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. 
He could have chosen to get glory from me that way. Right? Because they are, are, are they giving glory to God? No, but God's getting his glory from them through showing his power in his justice and in his wrath and his, his judgment. He's getting his glory from them that way. I could have been in that boat. God could have said, I'm going to get my glory from you that way. But he said, no, I'm going to get my glory from you by giving you all of this blessing and all of this mercy and, and, and um, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And an eternity of worshiping me in paradise. So we've got to remember why we exist and how we could have, how he could have received glory from us. I put we, sorry, should be he. You see that? Remember why we exist and how he could have received glory from us. He. That comparison, or sorry, that contrast should lead us to worship and praise. And it should lead us also to proclaim this truth more than we do. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is uh, talk more about what, what we do now. What, what does this have to do with me? Uh, what does this have to do with my life and how I live? What does this have to do with, uh, with my, my worship, practically speaking? Okay, so we're going to be talking about those uh, things for the next couple of weeks. And I haven't written the lesson yet, so I can't tell you exactly what's in store, but that's what I'm thinking. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Jimmy, pray for us, please, if you wouldn't mind. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.